Hi, this is Ken with Hacker Public Radio, and we're up here at the exhibition area, um, where the Hardware Hacking Village. And I'm talking to Jan Harper. And Jan, what are you doing here today? Do you know I'm just looking after this lovely stall, um, and this stall is for Raspberry Pi. And a gentleman called Pete Lomas is here today, and he is one of well, basically, he's the inventor of the Raspberry Pi. He did the the board and all the circuits, and um, we've got a few to sell. Um, and Pete's not here because he's actually giving a talk uh, to, to a group at the moment, so he'll be back soon. I'm sure you can speak to him then. So that's what I'm doing. And are you enjoying the show? I am, actually, because this is my first time, and I'm not really um, technical. I'm here because the day I saw the Raspberry Pi, I knew I wanted it in primary schools. So that's why I got involved in this. I think this is the cheap accessible way to get kids into programming um, so that's why I got fired up I can't program myself so apparently I'm going to be taught really soon and I'm going to learn from scratch and do scratch just like all the children in the school um, and I'm going to go on that journey with them but I just think this has the potential to move children away from just being simply consumers of products to creators themselves so one of the things I'm looking at is seeing if we can get some sort of a virtual European library of games and programs that children have created so that they can exchange amongst themselves and get some ownership of the knowledge that they can have. Are you a teacher yourself? What's your interest in kids? Um, no, I'm not a teacher, but I work um, ICT in education. So at the moment I'm working with newly converted academy schools that have moved away from uh, local authority um, funding and management who now have their own funding and can look at their ICT strategy in a, in a different way, in a more open way. That combined with the government now looking at the curriculum in a wider way. Um, so that's where I'm coming from with the pie. So my, my sort of day job is I would look at a school strategy, see what they're spending, where they need to put their spend, how it matches up with their educational needs and where the value is and that kind of stuff. Thank you very much for being here and thank you very much for um, supporting the Raspberry Pi community. Hi, this is Ken here. I'm uh, wandering around upstairs in the hardware section and I've come across... Ben. Ben. Who's, uh, I am building the Prusa, Prusa Mendel 3D printer. Wow, it looks essentially like a... Um, it looks like it's got uh, it's a, like an A-frame. Uh, can you basically describe it for our listeners, please? If you think of a Toblerone that's been squished up, has that same shape of a triangular prism. Um, it's mostly metal rods connecting together with plastic on the joints, lots of nuts and bolts everywhere, um, and it's actually a very simple machine when you get down to it. It's just something that moves in several directions and squeezes plastic out like a squeezing toothpaste out of a toothpaste uh, holder. The components seem to be uh, just regular threaded rod. Um, these brackets here uh, holding the things together seem to be extruded from a what could be a 3D printer. It was once upon a time, yes. So this is the idea of you make a printer to make a printer to make a printer. Yes, there's lots of work going on to refine the build so that fewer and fewer bought parts are used and more and more printed parts are used so that we can get to a point where the printer works comfortably but with most of the parts just being secondhand from someone else building them for you. 
And how much would a printer like this cost you? Um, if you source it yourself, you can probably get it cheaper. But if you buy an entire kit, um, you're probably not looking at more than £500. Okay. And if you buy the kit, do you get an instruction manual how to put it together? You get everything that we've got here today, which is the instruction manual, all the parts, all the pieces, the electronics, uh, a small reel of plastic, and basically enough to get going with. Okay, so what's your motivation for doing this? I think that it's an excellent tool to have nowadays. Um, it can, because we don't really do woodworking much anymore. We don't have metalwork as a core subject. People will take it up, but these can be used without having that level of skill required to make something. Um, it's about making something digital into the real world, making it physical. And I think getting these into the hands of especially children, but of anyone, to understand that this is how simple it can be. Uh, because I, I think that this printer should be able to be built over the course of a weekend just by me. So with people helping, we should get it finished even quicker. I must say it's causing quite a stir around. Uh, people coming down to our booth have been, uh, have been using it as an excuse to go upstairs and see how far you are with this printer. But it's basically, uh, I'm just standing here, there's, uh, as a mechanical engineering student myself, there's nothing too scary that I see. It seems to be an instruction manual. Uh, he's got the requisite beard that you need for, for constructing something like that. So where would somebody go if they wanted to order one of these? Do you, are you running a company yourself? or I, I don't. I... Um, I'm trying to do more of a pay-it-forward motif where I'll go and help someone build it with the knowledge that, well, with the mandate on them for them to go and do exactly the same to someone else. Kind of similar to our own thing here in Hacker Public Radio. If you're listening, we expect one contribution a year, no pressure. Yes, no, it's, it's a very positive thing. And it's, I don't have any part or say or financial gain in this. I just think it is something that people need to get hold of. And just know it exists and can be attained by anyone, really. Okay, where could where should you uh, send our listeners to? What's the website? Um, the the key problem is that there are lots of people selling different kits. Yeah. Uh, this particular kit was done by Next Day Next Day Reprap, I believe. Next Day Reprap, and the kit seems to be fairly complete. Plastic parts seem okay. Um, we've yet to test the electronics, but it seems like it's a complete all in one box okay and it's got the GNU logo on the front and uh, GPL V3 so yeah, that can't be bad okay I might drop around uh, later on during the week see how you're getting on thank you thank you very much for the interview bye bye hi this is Ken I'm up at the hacker space I think on the third floor at Ogcamp 12 and I've just come up to talk to Lee about about digital embroidery digital embroidery Please tell me what I'm looking at here. Well, what you're looking at at the moment is a Brother embroidery machine, a PR650, which is a six-needle multi-color machine. Um, It is running proprietary software at the moment, but I'm here hopefully to meet up with people who may know other people or get into the realms of uh, an open-source version for digitizing images and turning them into embroidery, embroidery patterns. Can you walk me through what it, what it looks like? Essentially, it's a sewing machine. I see three different, six different colors at the back. They're all fed through a warp down through six di- different feeders and essentially six di- different needles. Would that be correct? That's exactly right. And then it takes, um, it takes a hoop arrangement, which you put the garment into to position it. And it's got a programmable um, screen, touch screen. 
You can also plug into it with a laptop or USB. And essentially the whole machine just moves its arm arrangement around to make the stitching of the pattern. So you could then upload some sort of image. What sort of formats does it take? Uh, Well, it'll take any graphical format, um, GIF, uh, PNG, JPEG, etc. But they do need converting into stitch patterns, which is... uh, I have some proprietary software for that, but that's what—that's the link I'm looking for, is to have that open-source version of something that will take ordinary graphics files and turn them into stitch patterns. I'll tell you what you need to do is uh, get Linux, uh, Linus's wife to buy one. You heard about his sewing machine? His wife had a, uh, had a sewing machine, and it wouldn't work with Linux, so he wrote drivers to get it working. <laughs> so that's the key. Make sure. You need to find out what one she's using. Okay. Um, and it's the image, does it have to be a particular quality or anything? No, not especially, but it does sometimes take a lot of touching up to get the uh, stitch pattern right after you've got, got an image. So it can take a bit of hand manipulation. Okay, and I'm looking at an old cam t-shirt and it's got the words Mike the Bee and... Uh, half so, a word. Yeah, half a word. And... The, and test pattern and basically it's for stitching logos this would be ideal for doing if you had t-shirts to do embroidered on it how much would a machine like this set you back uh they're not cheap i suspected that all right about six thousand pounds wow my sister-in-law has one but it's only got one needle on it but you can change the color and it continues to go over so that was considerably cheaper but obviously more work Right, exactly. That's the, that's the thing. This is a sort of semi-industrial version in the sense that you can make more complex patterns without having to keep stopping changing the colours. Yeah. And do we have any idea of the proprietary nature of the, of the device? Is this, has anybody helped you to, uh, to check the interface, whether between the programming device and the device itself, that we can see what the control is uh, no they haven't but the bit that I'm really interested in it does I'm not so worried about the brother part because the brother will take open di- um, digital pattern types yeah. so the key is to be able to convert any form of graphic into any pattern form which this um, this machine will load okay. and is there any information uh, so you're saying there's an open format for that it will accept and is that specification is known is it it, it, it is known. There's an open stitch format, but I just don't have the software at the uh, moment that will create that open stitch format. So what you're looking for is somebody who will take a JPEG image and convert it into a stitch format. Exactly. And that both of those standards should be available. So if there's any hackers out there, especially listening to Hacker Public Radio, and feel the need to contribute back to the community, could do so by writing that piece of software and gaining the fame and fortune that goes along with it as well. Not so much form fortune but definitely the fame definitely a bit of the fame and of course i'd be uh, willing to take part in that development as well as a software developer but it's just not something that i could do entirely on my, on my own yeah gotcha tell me what is uh, where can i find this for information about this format so i can put it into the show notes where can I find more information about this whole project, in actual fact? Okay, well, um, my, the website for my project at the moment is just a basic one, which is stitchdigital.co.uk. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-D-I-G-I-T-A-L dot co dot UK. Yeah, and essentially that's just a small website at the moment, which is, is to promote the purchasing of garments and having them customized. But I intend to expand that website, which will have information about what I'm looking for and what I want to get involved in with the file formats and the stitch formats and so on. But essentially the net 
is your friend and you can just go in and look for stitch formats and uh, open formats and so on. Okay. Hi, this is Ken again here up at the hardware section of OGCAMP 12 and I'm talking to Beth. Beth, what are you doing up here? Um, I'm helping people to do upcycling or recycling, so reusing old t-shirts that you don't want to wear anymore or that maybe don't fit you um, but you actually still really like the design so we're changing those t-shirts into bags very nice can you uh, can you take us through sort of what the process might be bearing in mind this is an audio podcast <laughs> that's fine yes no problem they had some um, a variety of t-shirts left over from last year's old camp so yeah. they let me use them so we have a normal T-shirt, yeah. and what we do is we cut both sleeves off. Yeah, get that, yeah. Then we cut the neckline off, yeah. but you want to go a little bit lower than your actual T-shirt neckline, because yeah. remember, you're putting stuff in a bag, gotcha, so yeah. it's not yeah. going to leave a lot of space. Yeah. Then if you've got a long T-shirt, yeah. you can always chop a bit off the bottom. Gotcha. Um, one thing I do say to people is don't put 10 tins of beans in it. Gotcha. Jersey stretches, you'll be dragging your T-shirt yeah. behind you. <laughs> Then we turn them inside out and we pin and then stitch along the bottom yeah. with a zigzag stitch because the zigzag stitch has a bit more give like your t-shirt yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. We do two layers and then you turn it back the right way around and you've got a bag. Fantastic. Any strap on this bag? Oh, the... Yeah, I've got one. Oh, yeah, the... Um, and here's one we made earlier. <laughs> And of course, the shoulder straps, I guess, would be the um, would be the handles of the bag. Yeah. That's very, very nice. The combination of the sleeve hile and the um, the fact that it's already stitched by the manufacturer yeah. at your shoulder seam yeah. means that all you have to stitch. It takes longer with the cutting than actually the stitching of the bottom of the bag. Yeah, and it's a, it's a regular stitch, so exactly. pretty much anyone can do it. Yeah, yeah. It's ideal to do it on a sewing machine because of the strength of the stitch. Yeah. You could do it by hand, but you'd need to probably do about four layers and it would take longer. But you could do it in front of the telly, I suppose. And just test it. Why are you here? Because um, I like the fact that you can do things for free or for very little money and I don't see why people should be spending a fortune and throwing old clothes and throwing things out. What's your name? Paul Freeman. Hi Paul, how's it going? Uh, what are you, who are you and what are you doing? So I'm one of the organisers that does Liverpool. Um, we're a co-working space and makerspace based on Hanover Street in the middle of town. So it's a space where we, during the day, mostly we have space where you can either have a permanent desk or um, just do a day's hot desking. We have a group of people who do that, so mostly freelancers and creative sorts. Uh, and we also run events like Maker Night, where people can come along and start playing about with things like 3D printing, laser cutting, um, the Internet of Things type technology like Arduinos. And people can come along and either work on their own projects if they've got something in mind already, come along and just see what other people are doing if they've never encountered it before. Uh, and, tr- and trying to really just build that community and get people to do exciting things, and get people excited and give them a space where they can... Take, take advantage of that. And is there many people um, in your community at all? Yeah, so we have, um, in the actual workspace, we have about nine, ten people with permanent desks, um, another sort of ten or so who are, turn up to do hot desking, um, and then we have probably around sort of 30, 40 people who on and off come to the event. So it's, it's slowly growing, it's, you know, it's, it's getting, trying to get more people interested and to know about us and spread that awareness, but we're, we're getting there over time. We have a, a we do have a, a diverse group of people who are coming in 
Okay, how, uh, how much is there membership fees? How much is it to join? Or So the events we run specifically are free. Anybody can come along. Um, and then from sort of using the space outside the events, we have like a workshop membership, which is £30 a month, and you can come in and use the tools and equipment. Um, hot desking is £8 a day, and that lets you also use the laser cutter and the 3D printer and stuff as well. And then those of us who have a full-time desk, uh, it's £150 a month, which gives you an address and a space to come in and all your tea and coffee and electricity and Wi-Fi and all that stuff as well. Oh, it's quite interesting, actually. It's, it sounds a lot, but you know, if you compare that it to comparable is. office space... Yeah, and it depends on how you balance it, because we, we, we get decent coffee from the... Like, Bowl Street coffee, we get really nice coffee. Um, so, I mean, for Dave's point of view, like, if you spend, you know, buy three coffees in a coffee shop, then that covers that. So, yeah, so it depends on what people are looking for. Um, but for most of us, because we're mostly like mostly freelancers um, who are doing it, so just having somewhere where you can get out the house and sort of sit down and work somewhere in a, a space where other people are working as well and have some sort of human contact um, is really sort of... So, so even if you were around uh, and you were doing website design, for instance, just get out of the house, do that nine-to-five feel rather than yes, coming... Exactly, rather than sort of getting up in your pyjamas and sitting on your kitchen table. Can you, um, starting at the other side, can, can we walk through the desk here and try and describe to our audio-only listeners what's going on? Okay, so on the end is Bubblino, which is Adrian McCool's, uh, Adrian's um, device. Which is, it, basically, it's a bubble machine which listens to the internet. So he listens for Bubblino, and today, any time anybody mentions the hashtag OggCamp, he blows bubbles. It is so funny. <laughs> It uh, is. That, that, that there will be a picture of all of these things in the show notes, just by the way, for this episode. And he, he's definitely a crowd pleaser. Everybody loves bubbles. Uh, uh, what's wrong? How's that run? I see it's just got some power okay, so and an Ethernet cable. Yeah, so it, inside is what one of these little devices, which is uh, an Arduino. An Arduino, uh, yes. And so he, inside that, he has an Arduino, which listens to, and Adrian's written a service in the back end, basically. And because there's about 10, I think, exist in the world, different people have bought them. Uh, and he connects this web service and basically says, it's a new tweet. And if it's a new tweet, he blows the rules. Fantastic. Okay, the next one, whichever the one you want one to pick. The, uh, so this is the RFID drum. Yep. Uh, and basically, every time you give it an RFID card, so your bank card, if it's contactless, or an Oyster card, say. Yep. Uh, That's a public transport card for people out in the States. Yeah. Uh, it will play a unique tune to that card. So every, t- every card... It gets will play if you represent it and you come back a month later, it'll play your special tune. Do you want to try it there? Yeah. So where's the audio coming from? Uh, that, that, and that. Okay. So. And that noise was made by a little uh, mechanical spring mechanism that jumped on a biscuit tin on a wooden box and on the tabletop. Yeah, so they're called solenoids. So it's a solenoid, which is basically, it gives a ping when, it, when a charge goes over it. Super. Moving on? Yeah. Uh, and then, so these are some 3D printed sort of artifacts. So we've got a 3D printer, which we've used. Um, so some of these are, you, know, you basically get a 3D model and you... you it looks remarkably like a castle. This one's a castle, yeah. We've also done things like, when we did the office, we, we've recently expanded into a workshop. So we have scale models of all our furniture and a, a laser-cut floor plan. And we could, we could re- rearrange the furniture to work out where everything's going to go to scale. Okay, now you've justified it to me. <laughs> right up until that, it was like, you guys have, have too much time and money. Yeah. Um, and then, so, moving on to the next one. So the next one is John McCarroll's Wear Dial, 
which and this is a just hold on one second I'll try and describe this it's a circular um, a circular disc with cogs on the inside and there's a cog a small cog on the top which obviously rotates it and we've got airport cafe pub station etc etc going around and what does that do that plugs into the service MapMe app, so MapMe.at, uh, and it looks up somebody's location and displays it in a, on the wheel. So very much like the Weasley fucking Harry Potter. Excellent, just going there, yeah. Yes. So yeah, it, it's one of those examples which if you've, if you've read the book, that, that's exactly what it does. Uh, if you've not, does it help? But yeah, it's a, it's, a vi- it's a visual way of plugging into the internet and telling you where somebody is. That's, was that done with a laser cutter than the cogs? Yes, yes. So it's an all laser cut te- um, sort of layout. And you're not afraid of laser cutting wood? Oh, laser cutting is, wood is beautiful. It works really well. I mean, it looks pretty, but yeah. you're not worried that it'll uh, go on fire or anything? It does occasionally catch on fire. We have a very sophisticated fire suppression system, which is a jug of water underneath it. Uh, but it's... I, Laser cutting is basically incinerating stuff yes. um, very quickly. Uh, but actually, things like wood and, and plastics are much more tolerant. Um, ca- corrugated cardboard is the one which we've had the biggest problem with because of the, the, the corrugation traps air quite nicely, yeah. which makes it combustible. Yeah. Um, but you're only combustible. Doing, hmm. yeah. They said there are a few stories behind that one. But you're doing a very small amount, and it's in a, you know. People building laser cutters are very well aware of the fact that it might catch fire. So it's mostly metal. Um, But it does look very, very pretty now. It's like a brown, um, graded brown sort of... Yeah, uh, and and that's actually something which some people, if you can put like masking tape on, and the masking tape will take the singe and you can get a much cleaner cut. But actually most people don't bother with that because people like the sort of the burn, yeah, the burn sort of aesthetic. Okay, walking on. And then, so a fruit bowl by the looks of it. Yep. And this one uses a technique called living hinge. Yeah. Uh, which I think we take this one. So this. I've seen this, yes. Basically, it's, yeah, you're, you're, you're taking something solid, cutting it a lot, yeah. and that gives you the really nice bending effect. Which yeah. So if I, can, well if I can describe that to the listeners on the podcast, it's a bit like a, an accordion. Um, so we've got lots of slits, but there is interjoining, uh, not, you know, interjoining hinges in between it that isn't, that isn't describing it very well it's a bit, bit like loads of H's one after the other yes. okay cool yeah, very fantastic yeah. so this and and the fruit bowl is basically a a flat piece that has been wedges have been cut out of it and there's those interleaving leaves and it's folded up on each other to form a fruit bowl very very pretty Oh yes, so this and actually, yeah, so this is yes. So then there's uh, what what is what's this joint called here? The uh, key joint, I think. So we got a key key joint again. The interlock to each other, two different pieces being put together to form a three-dimensional shape, more like a uh, yeah sort of little box actually that's that falls over, which you could no doubt super you know would glue together. Photos for all this will be in the show notes to the episode. Yeah, that's very pretty. And then, and then these are just. Uh, and you, for the, so we're looking at here a little uh, design of two uh, birthday cakes. So the the outline of the birthday cake is done with a candle in it, but engraved into that is the pattern of the cake. I didn't think it was possible to not cut the whole way through. Oh no! So you can do what engraving. And uh, so basically, when you're setting up the software for it, you control two things. One is the speed it moves at, and one is the intensity of the cut. And so you can move either by moving very quickly over the surface or by doing very low power, you can basically get the software to fill in 
the space. Uh, and it's that's where it becomes a bit of a blackout because every material's a bit different. So it's the actual the cutting of the shape is absolutely millimeter precise, but the how much you cut and the intensity you cut is a bit of a blackout. You get a feeling and you think this I'll cut really quickly at a fifty percent and see how that turns out. And that's where it gets to the I guess the artistry in sort of taking something of it. Yeah, I want this to be really dark, so I'm going to go really. With, Really strong, fairly slow, but you know that you know, one setting cuts it. So you say, well, I'll go half, uh, twice at speed. So hopefully it'll only cut half the way through. Um, I must say there, they, we're now entering into definitely the realm of art here. You know, none of these pieces will be out of place in somebody's house. Yeah, I mean, we get the people who are interested in sort of using the kit. It's definitely much more artists wanting to produce their artwork rather than i guess techies wanted to be artistic it's definitely people are sort of seeing yeah i've seen these techniques used somewhere else and an artist i've got an idea help me do it and that's and that's where we're really sort of finding the more interest i think techies techies turning to artists is quite difficult because as a techie once you know how it works you're happy yep uh whereas artists actually always have grand ideas which can be realised really simply because it's like even things like Bubblino is a very simple example of the technology switching something on and off with a really nice enclosure, and that whole smoke and mirrors of if you've got a simple idea but scale it up big, lots of artists get that and can sort of hook into that really easily. You can teach them really basic skills with the sort of available technology, and they can do something really grand with it. It's fantastic, and this big LED strip thing. It reminds me a bit of uh, you know an LED strip I want for the house. Yeah, so th- basically this is it's the individually programmable LED. So each one of those can be programmed separately. Is that normal, or you know, if I was to buy one of these in the hardware store just as a lighting, is that normal that you can individually program them? It gives you a lot more options uh, because the the actual strip itself has the circuitry in it. It yeah. saves you a lot of what manually wire. You could produce the same thing with an Arduino and a big pile of LEDs. Yeah. But then you get to the point where how much soldering do you actually want to do? You, although Mr. X has done a good uh, episode on introduction to soldering yes. here on Hacker Public Radio, but yeah, but it's one of those things. Yeah, this is what a really good example of. Sometimes you just want lots of lights to work really simply, yeah. um, and so it's and, and it looks nice on front of the desk. And is this is this like uh, so what I want to know is if I go down to the local hardware store, is this what I get if I ask for a strip of LEDs? I think this is a bit more intelligent in that I think because I think you can there's a lot more control over the individuality of them. Okay. Um, oh, sorry, uh, uh, for the li- listeners listening, it's a strip uh, uh, about two meters long, about two yards or so, and it's every uh, inch or so, uh, tw- twenty-five centimeters. There's a LED, and essentially the blue box at the end is controlling different colors. And what's what are they doing with this other than just? displaying nice that's, colors they just display nice colors sometimes that's sometimes all that's it, all it yeah. takes that yeah it's one of those things it's like that's just what it says on the tin it is fantastic and uh listen if somebody wanted to become a member of your community get involved where, where do I, where do we send them so we have two websites does liverpool.com d-o-e-s liverpool.com and what does that stand for do epic shit <laughs> you heard it here folks and the other website is makeanite.co.uk that's is that uh, in any way linked to O'Reilly's and their thing? No, no, it's it's all our, our own brand, as it were. And what's this thing on? Uh, I just completely forgot here. On the corner, there appears to be a pencil or a, a, a pen, 
um, on a whiteboard that has a piece of paper on it, and there are two pieces of yeah two wires essentially uh, pulling it up and down. The left one pulls it up, the right one pulls it down, and it is drawing from from. It's basically drawing a picture. This is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. There will be a picture in the show notes. Talk to me. Okay, so this is a drawbot. Um, it is actually we've we've assembled. Of course, it, it is. Um, I think I, f- I can't remember the guy who made it. Made it. We've got it as a kit, uh, and you can other people can buy them. We'll we'll have some links on the website about it. But basically, yeah, the drawbot is is two stepper motors which have strings attached to them, um, and by moving those strings, it has a little raft, and the pen comes down and takes the image, an image uploaded into the, the program, and it draws things. And it looks suspiciously like as if the components were manufactured using a laser cutter. I believe they were, yes. Okay. Listen, this has been absolutely fantastic. Um, have, you, have you found that like recently there seems to be a massive move into the whole hardware hacking phase? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think especially 3D printing, people oh, there's some really nice 3D printers coming out. People are really getting... The, Getting excited by it, I guess, is the thing. Um, and people are sort of starting to sort of be able to play with it. So one, everything's always known it sounds cool, but now people can actually buy something at a reasonably affordable price and put it on their desk and play with it. And it, especially as a group, as a group, you can get something and actually get your hands on it. It's fantastic. Thank you very much for uh, taking the tour. And now just going to take some photos of everything so we have it in for the show notes. Thank you very much. Okay, hi, my name is Ken Fallon, I'm up here at the hardware section of OGCAM 12, and I'm talking to... My name is Zachary DeSantos. How are you doing, and what are you doing here? I'm fine, thank you. I'm uh, very excited. Um, I'm doing, um, trying to get as much data from this kite today as I can. Um, I've bought various methods of getting data. I've got the focus for this weekend are these stretch sensors... Sorry, uh, let's, take a, let's take a walk back because this is an audio podcast. I'm sitting at the bench. You've got a whole go of wires in front of you. And what should I be looking at? Right. Um, this piece of elastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, um, I had this idea three years ago and I looked up stretch sensors online yeah. and I got a lot of corporations. And um, it was... What's a stretch sensor? Stretch. Stretch. Stretch sensor. And um, what does a stretch sensor do and why would you need one? This is um, measuring displacement or stretch. Um, So this is a piece of elastic, just like a broken elastic band. And if I hold both ends and pull, it it, It stretches. stretches. And it's conductive. So if I put it into a simple circuit with another resistor... When I stretch this piece of elastic, it lets less voltage through. Uh, okay, where are we going with this? And send it to the computer. And then I can then uh, send uh, that via, um, in, via a XB radio transmitter device um, through a serial port into a Python script, which then sends the data... Um, into another module which sends OEC open sound control which I can listen to on my my sound software essentially turning this piece of elastic into a slider on the music software okay and why would you do this so I built what what I'm building is um, I fly dual line delta kites 
and I've got two handles. Uh, you fly a kite. Um, it's a sports kite. Yeah. It's a stunt kite. So we're talking about a physical thing that a child might fly in the air, only more complex. It's a, it's the thing that a child, children are fascinated, and then adults come back to after they retire from their busy, crazy jobs. They retire. They remember their childhood, and then they go back to their kites. Or some. I don't know many people that have been on kites their whole life and not had a break. But but a lot of people go back to it after they've had a childhood, beautiful childhood experience. And then um, realise that kites is the way forward. Okay. So on the table, there'll be, a, there'll be a picture of all this stuff in the show notes, don't worry. So uh, on the table, there's a kite. Yeah. So what we've got is a piece of stretchy elastic band that broadcasts to the kite. Am I right? Yeah, essentially, the, the, uh, the elastic band is built into my kite handle. There's a, there's a spring on that so that it doesn't stretch too much. There's a limiting rope on it so it doesn't overstretch. Yeah. Um, I'm getting data which is based on is the kite pulling or am I when I add a pulse to the kite by pulling my hand yeah. it will give me a spike in the data yeah. that data is going on the XB series 1 um, it's configured to, as a wireless cable yeah. so it literally sends the voltage data um, into an analog it's, it's in the from analogue to a digital converter yeah. that sends the signal to the other XB Series 1, which is plugged by USB into the computer. Yeah. And then the, the Python script reads the serial monitor of the data and looks for two strings, kite line 1 and kite line 2. There's two float data, data floats. Okay. Uh, and what do you do with those? So far, um, like I've got a few modules that I've built. Um, I'm using a bit of software called TX Modular, yeah. which, is, which is written within SuperCollider. Um, SuperCollider is open source, uh, massive piece of software that people use to make various interactive things. Yeah. And, um, and the TX Modular uh, has been written to make it easier for people to code without being able to use coding language and programming language so you've got quite low level modules and in a way you're you are coding still but you're using things like um, sequencers to sequence events um, analyzers that analyze your data and give you and give you and convert that into into other floats such as sliders that you can control samplers or they can control um, via OSC, Open Sound Control, they can control graphical, um, manipulate graphical um, controls. Yeah. So I see it as like puppeteering on the software. You're sending a lot of different floats. So I've got two strings on my kite. Yeah. I'm trying, those two strings are like two puppet strings that I can control loads of stuff on the computer. Okay, so you're, fl- you're actually flying the kite and in the process of flying the kite you're doing something on the computer. Yeah. What's that something on the computer? Um, today, I've got um, a grid of 25 squares. If you imagine a grid, 5 by 5, in each square there's a sample. Um, so you can navigate those 5 squares like you would navigate a map with a simple um, dot. So if you, move, if you move the dot to the top left, you're in square 1. Yeah. 
Um, so, so it's like having a joystick. If you had a joystick, you could move around the squares. You could move your position. From you, you've essentially built the world's biggest mouse. Yeah, it's a flying mouse, yeah. Like, it's not going to be a flying mouse in the future. <laughs> yes, well, that mouse could do inter- cool interactive I things. I actually built... Yeah, I actually built the sampler for um, a w- having a Wii controller on my head. Yeah. The reason why I built that grid is so I could move my head forward slightly and I would go to the beach. Move my head backwards and I'd go to the trees, virtual reality trees. Uh, move my head left and I could go to the shopping centre. Or like, so I'd put samples of, where, of a map in this grid. And I had a con- Wii controller with its accelerometers and as if I moved my head left, it would the action sequencer would tell your position on the map to move slowly to the left. So it's yeah. like a slow mouse for for your head. So I've so um, I've grabbed that I've grabbed those modules and that code, and I'm going to rearrange it for the kite. Um, what I've got here, looking at a pair of uh, old-fashioned goggles that one might. <laughs> Uh, seriously, the more I'm talking to you, I'm wondering, are you a genius or are you completely insane or both? <laughs> anyway, it's a pair of old... F- rethink severe mental illness. Yes, appropriate. Um, I, I see a pair of 1920s goggles that someone might ride with a sports car with some sort of webcam type thing in the front. Is it a webcam? It's a simple webcam. Um, I just... This is like with elastic bands, by the way. Clunky, clunky thing. Um, I actually got these goggles in an anime conference. My girlfriend took me to my first anime conference, and it was loads and loads of people, and they were all dressed up in anime costumes and things. And they had a marketplace, and I found these goggles, and I thought, you know, like these are what I'm looking for because they've got foam in them, and I can cut into the foam and add a webcam. So that's why I got them. Mm. So. Um, there's a problem with webcams outdoors when there's sun shining in fact there's a lot of problems because the the variables are are massive because the sun changes throughout the day so um, essentially this camera um, goes is is, uh, the software that is analysing this camera and it's looking for a particular colour that colour is lime green because my main kite is is completely lime green I had it customised in totally lime green Um, I shouldn't have chosen lime green because um, it's like it's nearly the colour of grass. It's nearly the colour of the trees, but I just chose that colour. I need to get a black one. I added this red um, lens to this webcam out of 3D glasses because I read online that it would get rid of some of the the glare, and it does. You see a great picture, but everything is lime green, so the, my kite is invisible. Kind of defeats the purpose, unfortunately. Okay. If I had a black kite, that would be ideal because everything else is lime green. So that would turn the kite into a, the joystick that I've shown you that would navigate my map, and it that that's why I built that map. But I've got to kind of hack my own my own program because I've got two stretch sensors instead of a joystick. They're to, it's totally different. And also, when you fly a kite and you do stunts, this is a stunt kite, you're doing a lot of jerky, fast movements, slow, graceful movements, where it's a massive range of movements. And what I'm hoping to do in the future is get my data so clean that I can record a palette of different things a kite can do as a gesture, as a signature, a bit like voice recognition. 
and I'm using Bruno Zambuli from Urkham University. I'm using. I'm hoping to. I've got his patch that recognizes um, gestures, and when you repeat a gesture, the computer will will follow you. So it sets a timeline to your gestures. Say, say I do um, like a circle with my hands, and it's following my hands. It will say, right, you're doing a circle with your hands. It normally took you 30 seconds to move your hand in a full circle. So we've got 30 seconds and we'll follow you as you move your hand around. And the computer will follow you. So hopefully I can get the computer to follow the kite as it moves around. And I'll have some significant recognition patterns. This is not going to happen this weekend. This is a long-term project. And, um, and, uh, but the idea is to make a palette of all the different movements a kite can do. And then that palette will have a set of... Actions, uh, that, you're actions say. that can control sounds and visual things. It is amazing what you do. Thank you. It is, some would say, completely pointless. But uh, no, actually, I think, uh, I think you're on to something. Thank you. I don't know exactly what it is. Well, I mean, I grew up in South East London, near Blackheath. They had Blackheath Kite Festival. And they do a lot of choreography for these kites. And normally they fly the kites to music. So this is within that community. It's making the music fly to the kites. Very, very nice. Okay, now I get it. <laughs> Finally, I see. <laughs> I see the vision of your ways. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I appreciate the interview. Thank you. Thanks for the interview. Hi, this is Ken again up here at Og Camp 12. We're up at the hardware hacking section. And as I walked along, this gentleman was waving a piece of electronic aperture in the air. Hi, how are you? What's your name and what are you doing here? Hello, uh, my name's John Chamberlain. Um, I'm from Blackpool Next User Group and I'm here today with my fellows just because uh, Arduino is an interest to me and not recently, uh, not, not too long ago I bought a, a one of these kind of Arduino open source kits, the Nanode, which is a, a UK built Arduino clone and I'm building that with my son and I was just getting, looking to, to get some ideas today for projects that we can kind of work on. Okay, as I'm looking here, I see a Arduino, uh, as you'll know from Hacker Public Radio previous episodes. And on one side and on the other side, you've got a breadboard of some sort with the LED sticking out. So what's the plan? Um, so what this, what this is, there are various kind of projects for Arduino, and the simplest one is just a, a flashing LED. And that's fine. That's kind of a test. It's like the, the hello world of the Arduino. Um, and there are various variations on that but what this is is what's called a persistence of vision circuit and what it is and whether you whether you've seen those things that people attach to their bike wheels and as the bike wheel spins it writes out a message like hello or whatever or yeah you see them at the airports and stuff as they spin around in a disc exactly so this this is the arduino take on that so so it's a very hydraulic one because you you kind of this is great for radio but i've got uh a piece of breadboard with a whole bunch of wires and LEDs just just inserted into holes and then wired, lashed up to the Arduino that's next to it. And then I've got a USB cable going from the Arduino into the back of my laptop. And then I've got, I mean, I've got the code running on, on here. And essentially, it downloads a, a, a program that displays a, a message in a persistence of vision format, which means that you actually have to move the LEDs to see the message because all you'll see when it's static is a bunch of flashing LEDs that don't show you anything. So okay, let's, uh, let's try it out here. Well, I have to say, my wire's full on it, so I'm just going to go back and plug my, um, plug my wire back in. Uh, and while you're doing that, I'll uh, turn on the videos so we have some video to go along with this. Well. 
if nothing else, there's going to be an element of comedic value associated with this. Yes. Now, let's have a look. That's there. Oh, here we go. So, one of them's not working actually, but I've got I've got six LEDs flashing. So you see, they're kind of what looks like when it's static, randomly flashing. Um, and you just come to me as I've just finished building it. So <laughs> this you come, This is at the alpha stage. <laughs> okay, enough excuses. Make it work. No, no promises. Okay. <laughs> so. So to, to introduce the element of motion into it, to make it a persistence of vision, you have to move the circuit board because on, on the board... Can you see something? I think... Oh, like, are they... There's followed. This is the prototyping phase. So the next stage is once you've proved the concept, we moved to the soldering stage. We transfer these bits of wire on a breadboard to some actual, it's gone there, a bit of circuit board and solved it so that you can wave it around and the wires don't fall out. But I think if I go fast enough, you'll see there is a word there. It's S-E, it's a four-letter word, it's S-E-O-C or something? Uh, the two words, let's have a look. Two words? Two words, sounds like. There's one or two, the snoot lab is one that's encoded in there and the other is rules. Snoot lab's rules, right. Snoot lab have we seen there? I'm, I'm desperately trying to... I, I see rules. I definitely saw rules, yeah. As we were watching that, one of the wires was flying across yes. the room. The joy, the joy of prototyping. <laughs> <laughs> I said, thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Okay. The video will be on the website. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Ken Fallon, and I'm up here at the hardware section, and I've come across somebody that you might know. Um, what's your name and what are you doing here? It's uh, Pete Lomas from the Raspberry Pi Foundation and I'm here because this is a hardware hack day. I'm an engineer, I've been involved in engineering all my life and it's absolutely fantastic to be here and see so many uh, young and not so young people getting involved in hacking hardware. And when you say you're involved in Raspberry Pi, can you be a little bit more clear to our listeners? Yeah, I... um, took the reference designs that that Broadcom had actually uh, given us and I ended up turning out the final uh, design of Raspberry Pi that you now can buy. So you're one of the team who are physically working on the Raspberry Pi project? Yeah, I'm one of the trustees and we work, you know, probably a day a week on Raspberry Pi. I have a day job as well, which I have to do. But um, yeah, no, we're actively working on it. I'm based up here in Warrington. The rest of the team are over in uh, Cambridge. But hey, that's no, not a problem with modern communications. Not at all. So what happened? Uh, you had a dream one morning, you woke up and decided you wanted to change the face of computing for everybody? Um, well, no, it was really, for me, it was to change the face of hardware hacking, actually getting something that, that kids could get involved with and they could actually try and make things that involved electronics. Now, I'd been to Imperial College to actually see a demonstration of a product that my company had built and I bumped into Alan Mycroft who is also now one of the trustees of Raspberry Pi. We got talking and the rest I think we say is history. We we just had a total synergy of objective of what we were trying to do which was to get children from 
all walks of life to actually fire their imagination into electronics and computing and programming and get them involved and really try and make that a career for them so then they would consider a career in computer engineering or computer science or electronics at university. Have you been, uh, have you been kind of floored by the, by the phenomenon that is the Raspberry Pi? Yeah, I think there was, a, there, was a ga- there was a comment that said, my gas has never been so flabbered. I mean, you know, we, we planned to make a few hundred initially and then maybe a few thousand. And, you know, we, we had a, I won't say we had tunnel vision, but we had a very good focus on what we were trying to achieve. And then it just exploded. I mean, that's a, highly thanks to, to, to Liz, who did some sterling work on our website and publicised what we were doing. And Eben seemed to get his face almost on every TV programme. And it just escalated from there. But I think in a good way, because not only has it promoted Raspberry Pi, I think it's promoted the whole concept of small computers and the ability to actually build things with small computers and achieve something novel. And some of the things that we've seen are just absolutely fantastic. Now, I absolutely take my hat off to some of the people who design things. They're so inspired, and that's what it's all about, is inspiring people to do things. And if in some small way we've achieved that, that is absolutely brilliant. I think uh, we said it before and we said it again here when I was talking to Clash and did an episode on, on the Raspberry Pi. It's all about the connectors. It's all about the connectors. It is. I mean, it's all about, I think, for, for me, it's all about having that access to the GPIO and being able to get into the heart of the system very, very easily. You know, connecting something to the USB is all read very well, but it's not quite as immediate. And as I've said in my talk, you know, a massive ecosystem has now evolved to actually support those connectors, to build things onto those connectors. And so, as I was also saying, it now gives me a bit of a legacy problem. If I start moving things around, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to corrupt the ecosystem. So we're going to have to be very careful how we go forward. And it just adds another challenge to the... Uh, um, and what is the, you know, do you have any scoops? What's the plans? Are you going to evolve the board? Um, the, the plan is, I mean, we're going to evolve the board in terms of doing the educational release. That is something that we are very focused on. But uh, as I've said, you know, there's, there's possibilities that once it all becomes completely open source, then other Pi-esque ecosystems will, will occur with other board designs, not necessarily done by the foundation. But that doesn't matter. What really matters is that it's galvanized people into action and are actually doing something. Because whatever they do, whether it's you know with a pie, whether it's a, with an Arduino, a nanobone, I don't think that makes any difference. The fact that they're doing it is the most important thing. I must say, as a mechanical engineer who slaved over a board for my final thesis project, it was working up in the lab and they moved it down to the, uh, to the main hall and wires went loose and it never worked afterwards. You are a god to all of us who, uh, who has made this whole thing so simple. Um, and uh, th- from, from everybody here, thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to say? No, I think it's great. I'm looking forward. This is obviously day one of uh, Old Camp. I'm looking forward to day two. Um, hopefully we can uh, meet a lot more people, and that'll be great. But I've, so far I've really enjoyed it, and I've got no reason to think that that's going to stop. So uh, 
I just say thanks for having me and thanks for the invite. And just was it a conscious decision to go with um, your distributors? The fact that it goes through uh, RS and um, who's the other supplier? Uh, yeah, Farnell. Was that a, was that a conscious decision? Did that um, kind of? Yeah. What, well, my it, it, was a, it was a conscious decision. It was a hard decision. Um, I mean, we, we sat there and we were talking on the telephone and we sat there and we thought about it. I mean, we were in a situation where we had 100,000 people wanting a Raspberry Pi, beating the path to the website and saying, when can we have it? When can we have it? So we had two choices. We could have kept it in the foundation. We could have worked at it as best we could. We could have kept it completely open source and we could have delivered the product probably a thousand a month, two thousand, then maybe four thousand because we'd have had to get funding, we'd have had to make arrangements with suppliers, all that sort of detail that you perhaps don't think about. And we'd also have to set up a worldwide distribution. So we looked at it and we said, well, now why are we doing these guys? Are, you know, they are at the top of their game, but what do we have to give away? Well, not unreasonably, we have to give away something, and that was give them some exclusivity to actually get back some of their investment. No big deal. Well, no, I don't think it is a big deal. I said, you know, without them, I don't think Raspberry Pi would be on the planet in the way it is today. And I don't think what the ecosystem has now created as a result of them being there would be there today. So they're absolutely instrumental in what we've achieved. And they know that ultimately we want to take it open source because that was always the aim. And they're fully behind that. But, you know, they're just going to say, well, come on, guys, let, let's do our bit first. I, I think that's only fair. Yeah. Not a problem. By happy coincidence, you know that every school, college, engineering workshop in the world has one of these, uh, you know, has an account with these guys. And the technicians can simply order this as they're ordering the resistors and the capacitors and just making it easier for the students to buy it without having to get any budget signed off. Well, that's right. I mean, it probably would come, you know, they're so cheap they are under the radar, I guess. But, I mean, I, I couldn't possibly uh, suggest that people buy them that way. What they need to do is put their own money on the table and buy them. And the other thing, of course, is they are cheap enough to break. You don't worry, really, about breaking a Raspberry Pi. I mean, you try not to. When they were really, really rare, you didn't go near it. People were handling them with kid gloves. That wasn't the intention. The intention was to get there, get stuck in, and if the worst happens, it's only the same cost as a trip to the pizza hut or something. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All BinRef projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Share Alike, 3.0 license.